Um, I'm going to uh, do the reading now. It's on page 1059 of the Pew Bibles. It's Luke chapter 22, starting in uh, verse 63. And I'm going to read uh, all the ways down until Jesus is condemned. This is, this is God's word. Verse 63. The, man who were guarding, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been waiting to see him, wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his teachers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod's, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in a city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. <clears throat> so Pilate decided to grant their demands. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, 
and surrender Jesus to their will. This is God's word. So, um, good morning, everybody. If uh, you're a visitor here, I, I think I, I see a lot of faces I don't uh, recognize. You're very welcome. Uh, I hope that you, uh, I hope that God speaks to you today, and you speak to Him. And stick around afterwards. We have some tea and coffee. Uh, come up and talk to me. Or the other man who was here before, he's the minister. I'm just the assistant. Uh, you can come talk to one of us if you guys if you want to talk about it. In, in anything. Anyway. What I'm going to do this morning is <clears throat> go over this story here that I read out there a few minutes ago. And there are five scenes in this story. Jesus is with the guards. Then he's with the Jewish leaders. Then he goes to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. And then he ends up back with Pilate again. And that's it. And what I'll do is, I'll go through all of that, making a few comments along the way. But I don't mind telling you that really all I'm going to be doing today is ringing a big, ugly bell. And Christoph was talking about bells earlier on. That was a coincidence. Um, how would you feel if someone you loved was treated like Jesus is treated here today. Not so good, right? Because you know <clears throat> that this is this is our Lord, right? Our leader. And being, being, I was thinking about this week. Being a Christian is like being in a gang. And here's the person that we follow, and he's been treated like scum by everyone who's around him. He doesn't get one good look in this whole time. And we're just going to look at that today. And before I, I, I will look at the details of it, I, I want to I try and frame what I think is happening here in a way that I think is appropriate. You might have heard of the story about three years ago of the martyrdom of 21 Egyptian Christians. The uh, ISIS affiliate in Libya captured 21 men from a building site cut their heads off, filmed their murder, and released the video. And it's a strangely encouraging story. And my favorite part of the story, however, is about the one man from that group who wasn't Egyptian. Um, it's this lad here. His name is Matthew, I think I'm pronouncing it, Ayiraga. Matthew Ayiraga. He, we don't know, he's either from Chad or Ghana, I'm not sure. But either way, he was an immigrant looking for work and he was abducted at the same time because he was working with these Egyptians. And apparently, he didn't have much of a faith. But when he was asked by the ISIS men, do you reject Jesus? He is supposed to have said, upon seeing the faith of the other 20 Egyptians, he said, my God is their God. And then they killed him. Now, I don't actually want to talk about him today, Matthew, but I thought it was a good story. I like it. It's encouraging. But the real reason that I tell you it is because this image here of Matthew, and you, you can take it, I don't know, Peter, or Paul, of Matthew kneeling in front of his murderer, 
is a variation of one that we have all now become familiar with over the last 10 years. And it's the image of a man in an orange jumpsuit, kneeling in front of another man, all dressed in black, who happens to be holding a, a knife. And any time that we see one of these images, we know that sometime soon after the picture was produced, the man in black kills the man in orange. It's like an iconic image from the last five, ten years. And these images, of course, come mostly from videos that these murderers produce. Propaganda videos designed to instill terror or inspire similarly minded people. Now, I don't know actually when I first came across them, but when I started to read about them and I started to see these pictures in the papers, my, my, uh, my first reaction actually wasn't horror or terror. You know, I wasn't suddenly worried, oh, we're going to be overrun by these guys. Mostly my reaction was to think, what would I do if I was the guy in the orange suit? What would I do? And as I've thought about this, and maybe it's just my personality, I don't know if, if something that goes through your head. As I've thought about it, I've realized there's actually two situations that's going on here that I need to wrestle with. The first is probably the more obvious one. You know, these people, these brothers, some of them are brothers of ours, die a horrible death. And I've wondered how would I behave in the immediate moments before it happened? Would I maintain some dignity? Would I be able to say our Lord's name? Or maybe tell my captors that I offered them my forgiveness? I don't know. I don't think anyone know, for certain. But as I said, there's two situations that my mind is drawn to. And the dying itself is one thing, but I have found myself wondering just as much about how much or how I would deal with all the time leading up to the getting killed from when I was captured. The time where I was held captive by these guys who not only hate me, but have such zero regard for my life, my existence, my individuality, that they think it's perfectly okay to kill me. And indeed, that's what they're going to do. So every moment that I'm alive in their presence, I'm spending it with people who see me as less than dirt, who I know hate me and are going to kill me and are going to do it soon and more than likely it's going to be done in a very unpleasant and painful way. How, how would I deal with that time? And the reason I tell you all of this uh, is because I think it frames pretty well this section of Jesus' life that we're looking at today. This is the part of his life after he is captured but before the crucifixion. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It's, that's Easter time. That's what we do. And there's no comparison in the suffering of our Lord on the cross and this period here. In fact, we will never fully understand what happens on the cross. But, but this section of his story, where he has been bandied around town with his own people, his own kind trying desperately to get him killed through lying, through manipulating the system. This section is its own kind of horror for Jesus. So let's, let's look at it. 
We, we start off with him when he's under the charge of the guards. And we learned last week that these are temple guards. So they were religiously aware lads. And they are mocking him and beating him. They put a blindfold on him and they taunt him to predict when are they going to hit him. And at every step of this story today, uh, there is a great irony in everything that is said to Jesus. And here is no different. For two reasons. Firstly, every single Jewish prophet looked forward to the day and talked about the day when the Messiah, Christ, would come. And there he was in front of them. And yet there they were making fun of him for not being able to prophesy when they would hit him. That is a category level one error of using the wrong words at the wrong actions and the, at the wrong time. Secondly, and probably Luke is making this point more so than the one I just made, but only two sentences previous to this, we have been told that Peter is outside crying his eyes out because he cowardly disowned Jesus, exactly as Jesus prophesied that he would. And yet here, only yards away, as Luke points out, he is having his prophetic powers mocked and doubted. At daybreak then, which I think is about six o'clock, all of the religious bigwigs get together and have a meeting in which Jesus is brought in front of them and they get straight into it. If you're the Messiah, tell us. Now Jesus doesn't give them a straight answer, which is something he does a lot of. Instead he gives them an answer that shows them what he thinks of them. He reckons if he tells them the truth, they won't believe it. And in fact, if he was to turn around and ask them the same question, they wouldn't answer it themselves. Which, when you think about it, is a kind of amazing because effectively, Jesus is indicating here that they wouldn't say he's the Messiah, right? No, no surprise there. But they also wouldn't say he wasn't it either. Why? That's clearly what they believe. Well, because they're gutless. Even on home ground, in a favorable crowd, they're afraid to speak the truth. I, I could be wrong there, but I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, but I think from what we've seen about these leaders, I'm on the right track. And you may remember a couple of weeks ago, these same leaders asked him about his authority, and he replied with a question about John's baptism, and they were afraid to tell him the truth there too. The next thing he says, it's very important for understanding this passage. passage. He follows up this statement about their character by saying these words. He says, But from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of, the mighty, of mighty God. And there's a lot in there. So I want to slow down a little bit and explain it as best I can. This term, the Son of Man, that Jesus has used, he's used it a good few times in, in Luke's Gospel. And it comes from the Old Testament, book of Daniel, chapter 7, and it would have been kind of an obscure name for the Messiah, I suppose, that's the best example that I could give of it, is it would be similar to if you were talking about Edward Carson, right, but instead of using his name, you use the phrase, the Stormont statue, right, so it's a bit obscure, but if you know your stuff, you'd know that was Edward Carson that you were talking about. Well, the same thing is going on here with the phrase, the Son of Man. It's an obscure way of talking about the Messiah, or as the reading said, Christ. And most of the time that Jesus uses this phrase, 
the Son of Man, he's emphasizing that the Messiah will have to suffer, that he's there for the lost, for sinners, etc. But this time, Jesus says that he will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God and by this Jesus means that the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be given authority. And so this time when Jesus uses the phrase the Son of Man, he is explicitly referring to the story that is found in Daniel chapter 7. And what happens in that chapter is Daniel has this amazing vision where the kingdoms of the world arrogantly try to rule the world instead of God. And so God sends the Son of Man, who is then enthroned over the world. And he is given authority over everyone. So Jesus is making the link. And Jesus, by doing this, is, he's saying two things here, right? Firstly, he's basically saying to these leaders, listen, boys, well, he's probably not saying it like that, but he's, he's saying, he's, he's essentially saying to them, boys, you have me on trial here, but the day is coming right soon when I will be judging all of ye. That's the Son of Man's job. And of course, you know, I, I shouldn't pass it by without saying it, but the day is coming when we will all be judged by Jesus as well. All of our thoughts and actions will be revealed for what they were. Were they what God has forbidden? Or what he has asked us to do? Were they done out of faith and for God? Or were they done with no faith? And for ourselves and for some, or for something else? These are the things that will be made clear. And by the way, I've noticed a tendency uh, these days for, uh, in Christians when we're talking about sin and particularly our own sins to focus on the subjective side of it you know, our motivations, or, you know, who, who, who or what are we doing this thing for, why are we doing this kind of thing, and um, I think it's because uh, we talk a lot more these days about sin in terms of idolatry, and th that's totally fine, I, I agree with that, I use it myself quite a lot, but look, you know, if you're, if you're sleeping around, that's a sin. You don't need to look into the motivations to go figure that one out. If you're in charge of an organization or you're a manager in an organization that is screwing people over, that would be a sin too. And again, with regard to your motivations, it might be good for you to know them in figuring out how not to do it in the future. Sometimes that's an excuse. Anyway, someday, as Jesus indicates here, I don't know when, but someday, it's coming. You, me, everyone, we're getting judged. The second thing that Jesus does by using these words, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God, is, and I've, I've already hinted at it, is he kind of expands on the meaning of the phrase Son of Man. Again, sitting at the right hand of the Father is a little bit of an obscure phrase, but if you were a good Jew, if you were a good Jew, you'd know that this phrase has something to do with a person who was mentioned in two of the Psalms, which most of them believed was also about the Messiah. And within these Psalms, then there is someone who appears to be God's son, right? So here is Jesus, and when Jesus says this, he is bringing equivalency between the Son of Man and the Son of God. That's why they say what they do next. 
And straight away, the Jewish leaders, they spot this, right? But they also don't spot it. They spot the logical connection that he is making because they know their Bible, but they don't believe it, or they don't get it. So when they say to him, oh, are, are you then saying that you are the son of God? They don't know what they've just said. And of course, many people do this today as well. Uh, scholars of the Bible in particular uh, can say all sorts of, things, um, sorts of things about Jesus that are absolutely true, but because they don't believe it, they're just calling him by the right name by accident. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. So it's not enough just to say that Jesus is Lord. You've got to believe it. And these lads didn't. And our judgment will be hard. And I should say as well here that uh, Jesus' response to their question in the reading, it says, uh, he uses a phrase, it's a little bit different to most Bibles. He says, yes, it is as you say. Or uh, he says, um, you're right in saying that I am. But the, the Bible you have in the pew is the NIV from 1984, and it was updated, and they changed that. Uh, and in the update, and in every other translation they use these days, what Jesus, they have Jesus saying in response to that question is, you say that I am. Right? So it's a little bit more ambiguous. And all I want you to see here, and it's the same thing when Pilate asked him a question, all I want you to see here is he doesn't outright say, yes, I am the Son of God. But he doesn't deny it either. And in the end, it doesn't matter because his lack of denial is enough for the Jewish leaders to push on with their agenda. Now, those of you who are in the legal profession, or if you have any sense of logic whatsoever, you will know that an implication is not the same as a confession. And all the Jewish leaders have is an unproven assertion. And so they prosecute him on some very flimsy grounds. His own people, eager to get him killed. His own religious leaders, eager to get him killed. Men who said his true identity, one of the few who said his true identity, but they'd done so by accident. And that's the end of that scene. And the Jewish leaders, they do, they want him dead. But they can't do it themselves. They need Roman approval for that. So a whole lot of them get up and they go to see Pilate. And straight away we see here the Jewish leaders through nature, because amongst all of the things what they say, of what they say to Pilate, they, say, they include that he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which of course is nonsense. He never said anything like that. And anyway, as soon as Pilate hears that he is supposedly claiming to be king, his interest is piqued. And so he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Because if Jesus was claiming that, Pilate would have an issue on his hands. And again, like I said a second ago, he doesn't really, Jesus doesn't really say yes or no to this question. He's not going to play their games, you see. But anyway, Pilate wants to move on quickly. He wants to release him. Pilate wants to release him. And how I think in the last few years, especially, but particularly after 
Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ film came out. There is this idea, maybe you have it, I had it for a while, that Pilate is like a tragic figure, you know? He just knew, he knew Jesus was innocent, but he just lacked the courage to let him go. Or, you know, he could, you could hardly blame Pilate because who could stand up to a whole crowd like that, right? Well, I don't buy it. Because firstly, history tells us he was well able to stand up to a crowd. Uh, history actually tell us, tells us that he eventually lost his job because of a massacre that he ordered that was considered too harsh. And you know if the Romans are thinking it's too harsh, it was pretty bad. But besides that, here, what we see is the actions of a man who has no time for Jesus and even less for the Jews. Anti-Semitism has, has had a long history and I don't think there's any reason to think that we are not seeing that in action here. This is why later on we hear that Pilate and Herod have become friends. Do you ever wonder about that? They do so because Herod sends Jesus back in a purple robe, the, the reading says in a, a royal, an elegant robe. Now purple is a colour of royalty, so Herod is mocking the claims that were made about him. The Jewish leaders who followed Jesus everywhere that he went on this awful day, they're clearly saying to Herod, you know, like they say to Pilate, this guy claims to be a king. What are you going to do about it? But Herod looks at this beaten up man who's destroyed, who's saying nothing, and his only response is to laugh at him. And he dresses him up in these robes to mock not only Jesus, but the Jews who are so foolishly, so foolish as to be worried by this nobody. So when he comes back to Pilate in purple robes, Pilate gets the message. Himself and Herod are on the same page. This guy is a nobody and the Jews are fools. That's why they're friends. And again, this for me explains Pilate's seemingly great reluctance to have him killed. It's not for any great care about the truth or about Jesus. It's because he doesn't like being used by someone else to do his dirty work. Especially by people that he has no time for. And while all of this is going on, Jesus is standing there silent knowing what's coming, watching his own people, manipulating the system to get him killed, watching the system move inevitably to the conclusion that he knows is coming. And then we come to the last scene of this section of his life. A very famous scene Although Luke actually leaves out some of the more well-known parts of it. Pilate calls <clears throat> all the G G Jewish le leaders, and this time as well, he calls the ordinary people, the crowd. They're there too, and they have a public meeting. Now, as you may know from the Gospels, 
there was something of it, the other Gospels, there was something of a tradition that the person in Pilate's position would release a prisoner chosen by the crowd and later they do choose a guy who was arrested for murder and insurrection. And Pilate opens up by saying, you brought me this guy accused of inciting the people to rebellion, which is another way of saying insurrection. Luke is very careful to make that connection, right? He says, he talks about what Barabbas did twice. But Pilate anyway wants to release him, but the crowd shouts, no, give us Barabbas. The guy who actually did do what Jesus is accused of, that's the guy that they want. Two more times Pilate makes the case for his release and both times the crowd calls for his crucifixion. Now before I finish, I, wanna, I, do want, I want you to know one thing about this Barabbas guy, uh, which I'd never spotted before until I was doing my reading for this. But Barabbas is a Hebrew name. Bar is the Hebrew for son of, and Abbas is father, or approximately anyway. So it means son of the father. Which if, which is, if you have any theology at all in you, uh, you'll know is a kind of a generic term for everybody. We are all the father's children. And if, any, if you've seen any film of Jesus' life, and I'm thinking particularly of Mel Gibson's one here in particular, they all have a scene where Barabbas gets released and it walks past Jesus, who stays put. So Barabbas, the son of the father, the everybody, walks free, gets the new record, while Jesus stays put and gets charged for what Barabbas did and will then suffer the punishment that the likes of Barabbas should have got. And that's a picture of what happens to us when we become Christians. We walk free, he takes the punishment. Our punishment. And that's exactly what happened. The crowd calls for Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate gives in. Barabbas is released. And in another, what I'm sure is a deliberate use of words by Luke, Luke tells us that Pilate surrendered Jesus to their will. The very last couple of words. And that brings our mind back to the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but thy will be done. So Pilate thinks, the crowd thinks, the Jewish leader think, Herod thinks that this is all they're doing. And they did do it. They played their part and they are guilty. But behind the scenes we know that all of this had to happen. An innocent man had to die. That's how sin is paid for. That's how our sins are paid for. And thus ends all of the formalities. All that has to happen now is for Jesus to finish it off by dying. That was his last day with his captors. And actually Luke doesn't even tell us the half of it. The other gospel writers tell us about the scourging of him, the beating of him with sticks, 
the crown of thorns and the spitting. But even without that stuff, there's enough here to know that it was a horrible day for anyone. Not to mind the only innocent person that ever lived. Not to mind God in flesh. Now, like I said earlier, I just wanted to ring a big ugly bell today. Normally I would try and finish with some sort of practical application for what this means in our lives. Or some big or picture stuff that's, you know, encouraging. I probably would have used uh, the picture of Barabbas' freedom in the place of Jesus as a way of talking about how great the grace of God is. And I also toyed with the idea of, of telling you how the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, talks specifically about this time in Jesus' life as an example for us to follow when we are suffering for doing good. And he says, never insult anyone. So that's what Jesus did. And never retaliate. Instead, trust God who will judge everything. And that is indeed God's commands to us who are suffering. Particularly if you're suffering for doing good. And even more so if you're suffering and it just doesn't seem fair or right or make any sense whatsoever. Well then, in that case, Jesus' example here is for you. And Peter's words uh, tell us that Jesus got through it by trusting in God who will judge everything. They're also for you. But today, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to go into any of that. Because I felt that the Lord was leading me to just tell you what happened to him. And I, I pray that the Spirit will use these pictures in your life to spur you on to greater things for him and with him. Amen.